Paul explained this little video. You have some little video of the place, and you think, what's that have to do with the message? Did you ever wonder that? Raise your hand. Like, what? Yeah. My wife asked me that, so I thought, well, if she didn't know, you probably don't either. Because um, here, here's, what, here's what's in my brain, and that is that when you study the words, like, so the guy's gathering wood, you know, and he's chopping wood, and he's cutting wood, and then, and then he starts a fire, and in the end, he's sitting by the fire, warming his hands by the fire. Here's the idea I had in mind, and that is that when you study the word ahead of time, like the, the, this passage in Ephesians, you know, we're, if, you, if you don't know this, we're, we're preaching through the book, we're taking all of our texts out of Ephesians, and we're preaching through the book of Ephesians, but we're giving you study notes ahead of time so you can study ahead of time, so you're doing like me. As I study to preach, you study uh, to, to listen, and then when I preach the word, it's kind of like, yeah, I've been here. There's something, you know, that's really good about that, and we're doing it together, and then Hopefully you're you're in a you know a, a small group like a grow group afterward, and then you this this grow groups right now are based on the sermon on the passage the sermon's on. So you have a three pronged thing there where you study the word ahead, you hear a message about it, and then, and then you study it together. And if you're not already in a grow group, you can kind of create a little informal grow group with your family or with your wife or with one of your kids. And you could like talk over, or just do that thing where you talk over the message. And just say, you know, it's really easy to do is when you gather together in church, you can talk about people. You know how that is. We, we do that. Or we can talk about sports, or we can talk about whatever. But it's really, I've noticed that people who flourish spiritually are often people who, when church is over, they talk more about what they've been taught. They talk about the things of the Lord. And they're preoccupied with the things of the Lord. Wouldn't it be something if we could see things exactly the way God sees things? If we could see the way God who knows everything sees, it would change our lives. It would like change our hearts. It would actually be powerfully transformational for us to see things. If you could see things the way God sees things, what a powerful power that would be. And the thing that I'm thinking about today isn't just anything, but it is if we could see the church the way God sees the church. God has a very interesting, special way of seeing the church. And I don't think most of us really fully see the church the way God sees the church. Today, when we study Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 22, it's a full picture. It's a beautiful full. The whole Bible is the fullest picture. But it's a picture of, and it kind of answers the question, so, so why church anyway? So what's the big deal about church? Why should church be important to me? Why should church be something I devote myself to in my lifetime? What good is this, this church thing? Why church? It'll answer that question, and we're going to do that here today. Years and years ago in Chicago, there was a pastor. His name was Harry Ironside. They called him H.A. Ironside. He had a really interesting background. He kind of came without formal training at all to become eventually the pastor of the well-known Moody Church. And he did it for 20 years. And he had a world, kind of like a national worldwide conference ministry. But what he did was very, very simple. He would take parts of the Bible. He would take passages of the Bible. He would open the Bible and he would just do what, what, what often is called running commentary. His messages were running commentary on the Bible. In Europe, they would call this Bible reading. But what he would do is he would read a text. And as he read the text, he would make comments on the text, usually inserting, you know, meaningful anecdotes, stories, and so forth. And they say that he just had a real gift and it was powerfully used of the Lord. And one day he was on a train. 
and he was in California, and he was traveling a distance on this train, and a woman came up to him who was, called herself a fortune teller. And she said, not knowing who she was talking to, she says to this well-known pastor who's got a Bible in his hip pocket, right? She said to him, I would like to tell you your future. And Ironside said to her, you would like to tell me my future? And she said, well, you know, if you put a little silver in my palm, I will tell you my future. Ironside said to her, well, I'm a Scotsman, and I don't part with my silver easily. So how do I know that you really know my future? He says, in fact, if you don't mind, he says, I, have, I know my past, and I know my present, and I know my future, and I have it written in a book, and it's in my pocket. And she says, you know your past, and your present, and your future, and it's written on a book in your pocket? And he goes, let me show you. And then he tells a story in a kind of an extended way, which I won't for you today, about how he has this t- gentle, tender humorous conversation with this fortune teller about how God in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 shows him his past and his present and his future. He said, my past, I was dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And he showed the woman about how in his past he was dead in his sins. And then he gets to the part in verse 4 and he shows her the but God being rich in mercy because of his great love made me alive. And he goes, that's my present. I used to be dead spiritually. Now I'm alive. And he goes, now let me tell you what God says my future is. It's right here in this little book. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He said, that's my past, and that's my present, and that's my future. Well, that was interesting. What's, don't you always wish you could come up with quick answers like that to people? Isn't that fascinating that you have in Ephesians chapter 2, the past, the present, and the future of a believer in, in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, you have all the blessings, kind of like blessings for those who know Jesus Christ in a saving way, and that's called in Christ. In the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, and basically chapter uh, 1 and verses 3 and through 14, you have one sentence in the original language, which is just a bit, which is just praise. So it's praise for who we are in Christ. And the second section of chapter 1 is a prayer that we would experience all that really is ours in Christ. When you get to chapter 2, you have all of humanity's past, present, and future, if they're in Christ, and in, in verses 1 through 10. And that's where we got to last week. But this week we start in, in verse 11 and go to 22, and it's going to go over the same thing again, but it's going to focus that on Gentiles or non-Jewish people. It's downtown Detroit last night, and where we parked our car was weird and sketchy, and they didn't have any lights, and it was overpriced. But it was next to a synagogue, which was interesting, and I thought, here we are on Saturday night near the synagogue. That was interesting. On the way back to our car, we were kind of watching things. And I noticed that the synagogue, it said, it probably wasn't the most prosperous synagogue I've ever seen. It said, the, do- <laughs> the doorbell is broken, knock loudly. So these poor folks that, at the synagogue down there, if you wanted to get in that synagogue, you would have to knock really loud. Then they would send somebody to the door, whether they would, would, would let you in or not. Uh, I preached in Atlanta. And it's a downtown church in Atlanta. And it's called the Ark of Salvation. And the pastor says, when you get in the ark, we close the doors behind you and we lock them. You are not late to church at the ark of salvation or you're left outside. 
In, this is what the Ephesians chapter 2 and verses uh, 11 through 22 are going to say. You know what it's like if you're a Gentile. The Jews hate you and they have you locked out. And it doesn't matter if you knock, they're not letting you in. They have names for you. They call you, and it's kind of ugly, right? Uncircumcised. It's their way of saying you're worthless. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we should just read the whole text together. So let's take our Bibles, open it, if you haven't already done that, to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember. Verse 11. Therefore, remember. Verse 12. Remember. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, when you read uh, chapter 2, and, and it's, it starts out by saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and it's just ugly, then there's that part we call the blessed conjunction last week, where it says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You have the same thing here again in verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus You who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwell, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so why church? And let's, we'll look at this text and we'll, we'll be answering the question, why church? You know, in other words, to see the church the way God sees the church I want to show you like three pieces of advice from, from this point. First thing, if you want to see the church the way God sees the church, remember who you were without Christ. Remember who you were without Christ. You were, you were excluded because of man, because of their sinfulness, people. That's in verse 11. Uh, that's what, what Paul's saying. Hey, remember, there's certain things you should forget, like your accomplishments and, and your merit. And there's certain things you remember, like Jesus' merit and the pit from which you were dug. And he's saying there are really kind of two things that exclude you. You're excluded by man, if you will, men because of their sinfulness. And and that's going to be in verse uh, 11. And in verse 12, God, because of your sinfulness. We're we're like outside. We're alienated. We're far from God. Why? Well, first of all, people cut us off. Second of all, God has cut us off. People cut us off because of their sin. God has cut cut us off because of our sin. We're excluded. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision. He says in verse 11, remember. Isaiah 51 in verse 1 says, uh, remember this, maybe you're not familiar that this is from the Bible, remember the pit from which you were dug. That's always a really good idea. It's like, remember that God mined you out of a pit. 
You know, you were dug out of a pit, Isaiah 51. You were called uncircumcision. And, and then that wasn't nice. That wasn't nice. Were Jewish people supposed to do that? Right, good answer. No, they were not supposed to do that. Remember the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12? And God says, I'm going to bless you, Jewish people, so that you can do what? Bless every family of the earth. Their job was to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Our job, like as a church, same way. They were supposed, they were blessed so that they could be a blessing and so that they could bless God. That's what Ephesians is teaching us too. If you're blessed, you are blessed so that you can bless God by getting other people to bless God. You're supposed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be a blessing. They weren't. But it wasn't just other people that excluded us. It was our own sin, right? That's what verse 12 says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a pretty stark picture. You got to remember that you're not just a really good person that God wanted on his team, so he recruited you and you're making his bottom line look better because you're on his team. There's just no way what the Bible says. I talked to my doctor this week. Really a great guy. Love talking to him. It's fun to talk to him. He's a bright guy, interesting guy. Uh, and, and I said some things about medicine that he disagreed with. Like, you know, he had opinions that, you know, uh, my opinions and his opinions about medicine were different. So I said, okay, you're the doctor and you know more about medicine, so I'm going to do what you say. And then he just happened to say something about theology. And I just happened to know it's wrong. You know, here's what he said. He said, I don't think any babies are born, you know, sinful. They're innocent. I'll say, well, that's, hard. that's partly true. You're innocent when you haven't really committed sin yet. You're innocent of that sin, right? But you're born in sin because the Bible says that. We know that's true because the, the scriptures say that everybody, you may not feel that way. Uh, recently, I, I talked with a pastor. He was doing a funeral, and he was talking about original sin. That's what the theology is called, original sin. Um, that, that people are depraved, that, that, that the sin curse is passed down to everybody, and that when a baby's born, certainly they're innocent because they haven't sinned yet, but they are a sinner, and they're going to sin. And because of that, and that's what the Bible teaches. And that's not the only part of the story, right? We know, and we, you know, I have to get ahead of myself because I can't leave you in that you know, kind of like uh, cliffhanger, right? Jesus says, yes, you, I, I made the world perfect. I designed it perfectly, right? In, in, in the garden, they sin, and sin passed down like a curse on everybody. But I have a plan in motion, right, to bring my son, my sa- your Savior, Jesus Christ, in order to redeem and buy you back and give you a new nature. So before him, we're dead in our sins. I said, you know, I said it really graciously, but I said, hey, doctor, remember earlier when you said I was wrong about that? Like, can I, like, tell you this is, now you're over in my territory? And I would say, and he happened to be Roman Catholic. And I said, you're Roman Catholic, right? He goes, yes, I am. And I go, see, Roman, he said, well, you just told me Roman Catholics don't even believe. So you might want to check with your priest on that one because they believe in original sin, if you will. There you go. That's interesting. But we're excluded. We're, we're still friends. We're still friends. We're, because the guy could give you drugs that could kill you. So you want to stay on good terms with a guy. Anyway, so he's a great guy. Anyway, so, so remember who you were without Christ excluded by others, and really, you know, on the outside because of your own sin, you're like, are you feeling it? And here's the way it says, you're without Christ, you're without citizenship, you're without covenants, you're without confidence, you're without the creator God. All that is in the text there in verse 12. 12 is full. It's kind of a, matter of fact, if you, we won't do it right now because we want to keep our nose in the Bible here, but if you were to look at Romans, you would see there's kind of the, the opposite, there's a mirror opposite of this list. 
It's like the, the, the liabilities of the Gentiles and the privileges of the Jews in chapter 9. They have the covenants. They have the law and the prophets. They have Christ came through the Jews. They should know better. The Gentiles are on the outside, and most of us are Gentiles, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We didn't get that. We're not in that citizenship. Strangers to the covenants of promise. We didn't get the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. All Those aren't, weren't given to us then, right? And, 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 then we're with, and then we're like hopeless and godless. We're without hope and we're without God in the world. That doesn't mean that we don't have maybe feelings of hope, but they're false hope. We don't have genuine confidence, right? That's what it says there. That's in, in verse 12. Now, there's a, there's a second thing to think about if you want to think about church. Like, why, why, why is, you know, church important? And how can I see church the way God wants me to see church? Well, first of all, remember who you were without Christ, verses 11 and 12. Second, meditate on who you are in Christ. Remember who you were. And again, this does this twice, so it's, there's a parallel. It does it twice in chapter 2. Remember who you were. It's good to remember the pit from which you were dug. It's good for you, good for me. Then meditate on who you are, but now, verse 12, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near. And how did that happen? By the what? What's it say? I got your Bible open. What's it say? By what? Verse 13, by the blood of Christ. We say blood like it doesn't even matter, but if you had a pool of blood at your feet, you wouldn't be doing something else right now. You'd be paying attention to that pool of blood. Am I right? Because a lot of bloodshed means somebody's in bad trouble. Something's dying here. It's everything else stops. We've got a lot of bleeding here. The, u- the use of the term blood goes all the way back through the Old Testament where God wants us to associate death, blood and death, or sin and death. So when something, when there's sin, there's death. And that's the way it is now. The sin that we feel guilty of, it's going to cost somebody their life. And the somebody is us, unless somebody else gives their life, and the Lamb of God, Jesus, shed his blood. And that's why verse 13 says, now we're brought near through the blood of Christ. Even Gentiles, uncircumcised, you know, Gentiles, that all changed in in Jesus Christ. And now they're new things. And you can see these things here. They're going to build on the screen. We're a new humanity. Verse 14, he himself is our peace, who's made us both one. So what's he talking about? Both. Jews and Gentiles. Or, just, or you can just take any group in the, in the Middle East today. You have that Palestinian and the Jew. And if you go there, you're like, wow, there is hostility. There is scary hostility right there. You can, can't you feel it in the air? When you drive a bus into the West Bank, you just can feel it in your chest. It's frightening. There is serious hostility. That's not the way it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be one. Why not? Because we're not in Christ. If we were in Christ, we'd be, we'd be one, right? And, and this is what it's saying. He himself, verse 14, is our peace who's made us both one, broken down in his flesh, meaning when he came and he died, broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, where he's talking about the ceremonial laws that Jewish people had, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, one new humanity, so making peace, which our hearts long for. Verse 16 says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, and he uses a plan words, he dies to kill hostility. You think, well, what's the big deal? Just think about any division, that, that one you feel keenly. A division in your own marriage, uh, among your own family members. 
uh, people that you, you haven't gotten along with. You've harmed them. They've harmed you. There's this ill will. There's a feud going on. There's, there's, this, there's an icy silence. There's, or maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe it's just really scary kind of acrimony, real, real difficulty. You can't find peace. This would be one good reason for us to plumb the depths of what the church is because the Bible is going to say it is in the expression of the church through the death of Christ that he brings all of humanity in one under Christ. That's the only hope for peace. Notice that God's intent on Calvary was not just to unite man with God, but it's to unite us with one another in a, in a beautiful humanity, new humanity called the church. It's a new humanity. It's called the church. That's his plan. Second thing, we're a new nation. This is a, actually, you could just say a new kingdom. We don't say kingdom that often, but I like it better. It's a really rich biblical uh, uh, image. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens, right? You're no longer refugees. You are fellow citizens with the saints. That's what the scriptures say. So we're a new nation. We're a new kingdom. You ever read stories? Uh, one of my granddaughters loves her favorite uh, thing is princess stories of any kind. Princess stories. Which is cool. They're kind of all alike, but it's cool. Favorite thing is princess stories. Why is that? Because, well, we all have deeply embedded us a longing for a benevolent king. And for a wonderful, peaceful kingdom. In a place where people really flourish and love each other. And people are good and kind. And we don't have the heartaches that we have today. And this is what Paul is teaching. That Jesus gave his life so that we could be a part of a benevolent kingdom under a benevolent king whose rule is beautiful. And there's something in us that longs for that. And that in our age is the church. The church is supposed to be that new humanity. And the church is supposed to be that new kingdom. You say, what is the kingdom? Well, the, there's the ultimate kingdom in the eternal state. There's the kingdom age. We believe a 1,000-year reign of Christ. But it's interesting that, have you ever noticed how the New Testament just keeps using the kingdom terminology almost like interchangeably? Like, wait a minute, what's the kingdom? Is it that eternal state or is it that 1,000-year reign? Actually, both and the ultimate kingdom is the eternal state. When, when the ages roll into one eternal age is the ultimate kingdom. There is that promised to Israel 1,000-year reign of Christ, which is a kingdom. But we are now in the overall spiritual kingdom of Christ under his reign. And we should look at it like that. He's my king. I do what he says. Wherever he reigns, it's wonderful and good because he's the best king ever and the most wonderful king ever. And I yield to him because I trust him because he's my king. And this is our kingdom. And this is the church in our age. And that's why he uses that language. When you get to the end of Acts, at the beginning of Acts, it talks about the kingdom, and the Acts is all about the church. And when you get to the end of Acts, it's talking about Paul under house arrest. And what is he doing? He's talking about the things concerning, it doesn't say the things concerning the church. That's what it means. It says the things concerning what? The kingdom. Look it up. You can see that. Are you going to restore your kingdom now? The disciples after the resurrection, hey, is now the time you're going to restore your kingdom? People who love the king want the kingdom, right? We just like make the kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Thy kingdom come. Get it? So right now, that's what the church is. It is a new humanity. It is a new kingdom, if you will, in, in a sense. That's just so beautiful, isn't it? It's a new family. 
How warm is it when we think about terminology like that? Verse 19b, and we're members, the saints are the members of the household of God. I don't think there's any warmer term that could be used than when you think the ideal family gathered around one hearth under one roof with the same name and the love for one another and the undying devotion that you have for one another and the special, uh, special affection that you have. That's what the church is supposed to be, a new family, a new nation, right? A new humanity and a new family. It's so interesting. But then this is the, I think he says the last, the best one, if you will, the most powerful one for last. And that is we are a new temple. The church is a new temple. A new humanity, right? And we have a whole, a whole, you know, new humanity coming together, a new kingdom or nation, a new family, but a new temple. Look at verse 20, and actually all the way through the end of this section, it's talking about that. But verse 20 identifies it, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So he says, there's a, you, the church is a building, and, it's, and the foundation of the building are the apostles. The message of the apostles, right? What is that? That means when Jesus died and rose again and he commissioned men to go and tell the story. They were commissioned and sent. They were called apostles. They'd seen the resurrected Christ and they went preaching the message of the resurrection and they founded the church, if you will. Jesus is the cornerstone of it and the apostles and prophets went out proclaiming it. It's the teaching. It's the apostles' teaching that built the church. That built the church originally and that builds the church now. We don't have a new teaching. It's the apostles' doctrine, right? That's what we do in the church. We teach the apostles' doctrine. And he says, this is, a fo- this is the foundation of the temple. Now, the imagery of the temple, though, is extremely rich, and we should get it. So this, this moves us to our a kind of a third thing. If we want to see the church the way God sees the church, then what we do is we want to look back and remember who we were before Christ. And then we want to say what happened when Christ came. And we want to anticipate or even imagine what is going to happen because we belong to God. What is our future going to be like because we belong to God? And that's where he develops this idea about what the kingdom is in such a rich way. Verse 20, but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When he, when he writes these things, he's borrowing all kinds of words and imagery from all over the Bible. This is not just an isolated description. He's describing something that's in the mind and heart of God in eternity past and will stretch out into eternity future. And you can be a part of it and it can make sense of your world and change your whole life and your whole family. Get, get this. People who understand the church, people who see the church the way God sees the church, their lives are, are the better for it. And their eternity is ultimately for the better for it, right? It's important that you see the church the way God sees the church. It's his plan in our day. And if you're ever tempted, like I think we all are sometimes, to be a little discouraged because we see the church has some spots and wrinkles, we need to remember that one day the church will, have, will be seen by us the way God sees it now, without spot or without wrinkle, a glorious bride giving glory to God. It's his church. It's his bride. Imagine what we will become with Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Now, now I, I, I want to do a, a, a bit of teaching, and I'll come back to this because it's so power, powerful. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the temple of God in the New Testament time. And it says, do you not know that you, and the word you is plural in the original language, you all, 
if you will. You all are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you. When the Bible talks about the temple, there's some things that are always true about it. The glory of God dwells in the temple. That's the way it's supposed to be. Otherwise, it's Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. God manifests himself. He shows up. He makes himself real to our souls in a transforming power when the church assembles or in the tabernacle or in the temple. I have a book like That Thick by a scholar who has written a whole study on how the original garden was the first place of God's dwelling, and then the tabernacle was the place of God's dwelling, and the glory of God shows up there, and then the temple is the place of God's dwelling in the Old Testament, and the glory shows up there, unless Ichabod, the Spirit of the Lord, has departed. And then in the person of Christ is the place of God's dwelling when he was on earth, and the church is the place of God's dwelling, or the temple. So the temple is the temple, because it's the place where people bring, it's the people and the place where people bring acceptable sacrifice to God, and the presence of the Lord is there, and that isn't just some kind of ethereal spiritual nonsense. That means there's power to transform our lives where God shows up. That means I can have victory over my sin because the Holy Spirit lives in me, and my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and collectively we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't miss church because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You give a gift and you support the church because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are fired up about the mission of the church because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in it, and man manifests himself and shows up. You can't get that at a baseball game. And I don't like baseball, but that ain't going to happen at the monster truck rally. It's just not going to happen. I know, I went there last night, and he didn't show up at all. It was really cool. People got really excited when the cars flipped on their top, I noticed. And I thought, well, this is entertaining, and this is great. You know, it's a family thing. It was cool. I didn't have as good a seat as you did, Eric. You were down getting the exhaust, I think, there. But I couldn't help but think of this message because it was in my heart. And I thought, you know, tomorrow we're going to do something so much more exciting. And it's not going to be two and a half hours long. It's only going to be two hours long, you know. And it's going to be so much more exciting because we're talking about eternal things. We're talking about kingdom things. We're talking about life-changing things. We're talking about transformational things, right? Monster trucks are awesome, but they're not going to transform your life, Right? But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, can absolutely transform your life and can hand you an eternity that you do not deserve in heaven with God forever in his glory. Are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. Paul was excited about that. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, We are the temple of the living God. God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. And this passage teaches that. And 1 Peter 2 and 15 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, which is another name for temple, right? And into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we bring a gift. It's symbolic of giving God an acceptable sacrifice. I, I dedicate my body to God. What? An acceptable sacrifice, right? That's what the Bible teaches. We say, God, what is it that you want? I'm bringing it to you because you're God in the place where you manifest your glory and then you work your transforming work in me. This is the, what the Bible teaches about the church. So I would say church is something that should be a really big deal to you. When you see your past and you see what God has done in the present and you see what God's going to do through the church in the future, then you are totally going to want to invest in that. You're going to say, you're going to answer the question, why church? Very clearly. So when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, it says this about the eternal state. God is with man. He's tabernacling or templing, you know, with man. God is with man. He will dwell with them. God himself will be their God. This is the language throughout the Bible then that comes to consummation there in Revelation 21 and verse 22, it says there will be no temple there in the description of the ultimate eternal state. There will be no temple because the whole thing is a temple. 
for God's glory. But now where is the temple? It's wherever God's people assemble is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Also used of imagery of Jesus himself is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Also, every individual believer in their spirit is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That should just be... So then you see the church is God's plan. I think we have a slide on this. So the church is God's plan. Um, the church is God... Yeah, I think... Um, uh, move to the next one because we just went through that. And uh, so, I, so this is going back through the text again and answer the question why church. This is a review, okay? The church is God's plan to unite everybody in Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 10, chapter 2 and verse 10, chapter 3 and verse 10, you see that. That, it, that everything in heaven and earth together will be brought together in Christ. Christ is the great, beautiful, unifying factor of everything. Um, it frees us from the demands of the law. Remember, the, the Jews were going, we have the ceremonial laws. Like, wait a minute. What did this ceremonial law point to? Jesus Christ, death on the cross in particular. So when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all the ceremonial law. So in this passage and in the parallel passage in, in Colossians, it says he nailed that stuff to the cross. And so you can't lay that legalistic demands of the ceremonial law on other people because Jesus died and the church is the expression of the death of that legalism. Amen. Amen. Who loves that stuff? Dave, I'm going to take liberty here. You were telling me about your mom yesterday and, and I'm going to take liberty to just share with the people what you, what you told me, and it made me think. I know, I know this would be... She was raised in a very, very oppressive, legalistic, religious system. And it caused her to stray from the Lord for a long time. And obviously, we could tell yesterday, she came back. And Christ was her, her Lord and her Savior. But that legalism thing can cost you years of your life. Licentious behavior is wicked and wrong. It'll take you away from God. But perverting the church into some kind of legalistic system where I demand my preferences, I'm just going to tell you, this we have to take aim at. Because that doesn't unite us under Christ. We have to take aim at that. And we will take aim at that. Because that doesn't unite us under Christ. This is about, are we going to worship Christ or are we going to elevate some other little set of whatever it is that we decide is kind of the bar that you have to step over to get into our little social club, our little religious quasi-social club. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is united under Christ, under the apostles' doctrine. We don't add to that. We don't take away from that. And we're very keen to do that because the whole New Testament teaches that very carefully. The church frees us from the demands of the law. It doesn't free us from the demands of the moral law of God that's repeated in the New Testament. That's not what it's talking about there in verse 14 and 15. It's talking about the demands of the ceremonial law, those ordinances. And you see that, again, in the parallel passage in, in Colossians. In the church is a people in a place that has a special access to God. And that access to God is not just, I get to be near him. It's like, I go to God for an audience to get what I need from this omnipotent king. Like, what do you need in your life? What if you needed to change in your life that you just can't change on your own? You go have an audience with the king about that. Right? I can't kneel and get back up here. You go have an audience with the king, and you say to him, I need you, Lord, to deliver me from this pornography addiction. I need you, Lord, to heal my marriage. I need you, Lord, to bring back my wayward child. Nobody in the world can help me but you, God. I got an audience with the king and the Holy Spirit working in his church, the people that does amazing and miraculous things. He brings people to himself and changes things other people can't change and gives people a new heart and the church is the people in place with this access to God, and the church is a new kingdom and a new family, and it's a new temple. So it should be important to you. My wife and I, if we've never had our own home, right? You know, we, because we didn't have enough money to buy a home, we got married, we had a little apartment. And then 
when we got into ministry, we generally were in a parsonage, a church-provided home. But when we, were, when we didn't have a home of our own, we would often get our kids in the car, and we would take drives up into the Amish country where it's really pretty, and we would look at houses and imagine that we owned a home. Imagine what it would be like. You know, I was imagining a house with a big porch and a rocking chair out there, and I'm reading, and the sun's going down, and my wife is doing the garden because that would be really hard work for me, and it's just all, everything's perfect, you know. There's maybe a fireplace inside. We didn't have a house like that. We didn't have a house at all. We, we had a house we lived in that belonged to everybody else, and, and that was okay. That was wonderful. And then we, God called us to a ministry where we lived in this big hotel. That was crazy. It was cool, but it was just crazy. In a 16-story hotel with 500 rooms, we had a chunk of the sixth floor that we actually lived in for a number of years. And then we came here, and we got to have our own little house. <laughs> well, at first, it was just like, well, I guess this is where we live, you know. It just was kind of obvious we should get that house. And we've been there almost 10 years, and now it's kind of our house. It's, it's ours. <laughs> we, we, uh, Dale comes over and helps fix things up for us. I was going to say we fix things up, but I kind of watched Dale fix things up. Is how that, how that works, and provide moral support. And guys in the church feel bad for me sometimes. If I use a sermon illustration about my plumbing, they come over and help me so that my house is, you know, anyway, we're working on it, and it's becoming more and more ours. It's, we looked at each other not so long ago. I thought, it's kind of our dream home. Now it's our home. Kids come home to it. It's our home. It's our dwelling place where we live. So where's God's home? What's God's dream home? What does God dream about when he dreams about his dream home? It's you. That is what the passage is saying. You, people, are God's dream home. You, people, are God's way of expressing his glory, shining his beautiful, glorious, precious light into this sick, sad, dark world. You, Church, be the church. Amen? Rise up and be the church. Be the most glorious, blessed version of the church God can help you be because the world needs us right now. Let's sing about that. Stand and we'll sing.